What's most important to you when it comes to choosing your financial advisor? Someone who's aligned with your biblical values. How about someone who will take the time to explain your options? Certified Kingdom Advisors are professionals who meet high standards in competence and integrity and have been trained to offer biblical financial advice. To find a Certified Kingdom Advisor in your area, visit faithfi.com and click Find a CKA. Have you ever wondered what God's plan for the economy was before the fall? I am Rob West. The good Lord certainly intended for the world and economic activity to be quite different from what we see today. I'll talk about that with Jerry Boyer today. You'll find this discussion fascinating. Then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. This is Faith and Finance biblical wisdom for your financial journey. Okay, does he really need an introduction? Probably not, but Jerry Boyer is our resident economist and go-to guy for all things economic. He's the president of Boyer Research, and you'll find his columns at World News Group. Jerry, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be with you. And and I don't mind listening to the introductions. I kind of like them. <laughs> All right, I'll keep it up. Now, as you know, Jerry, this is actually part three of a six-part series on a Christian economic worldview that uh, started during the financial crisis when you got a whiteboard out and decided you needed to tell somebody, it happened to be your children, <laughs> how God originally created economics in the ideal economy. And well, I guess a couple of hours later, after a lot of whiteboard scribbling, they had a pretty good framework, and you're going to share part of that today, right? Yeah, they were my captive audience. It was the kids. Um, and I did that because at the time I was in a lot of meetings with the White House, with the yeah. uh, West Wing folks, the Council of Economic Advisors, conference calls with them and people from Treasury. And um, I felt like they didn't really have a principled approach to what was going on. So originally their thought was, well, nothing's happening here. Everything's fine. It'll all blow over. And I said, no, we're violating some fundamental principles. It's not all going to blow over. We're doing something wrong. And then when it didn't blow over but blew up, uh, then they said, well, what we need is a massive bailout. We just need to you know, tax the people and borrow and then give that money or invest that money in the banks. And I said, that won't help. That's not the answer. And I just found myself frustrated in talking to them because they already thought they knew. They had a framework already. It was basically Keynes. And they didn't have the right framework. And when you tell someone truth, from within a biblical framework, and they don't have a biblical framework, they don't have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so what does Jesus say? Well, in order to enter the kingdom, you have to be like a child. So I gathered together the children who didn't think they knew about <laughs> economics. They weren't the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, so they were teachable. Right. And I decided to teach them the basics of economics, and that's how this, uh, this series came about. Yeah, well, we've talked about the ideal economy, part one, and part two, what goes wrong. And by the way, if you miss those, you can find those on our website, faithfi.com. Today, we're talking about why it goes wrong. Uh, Jerry, unpack that for us. Well, it goes wrong because we fix it the wrong way. Um, and so, it, you know, things go wrong because we put, you know, the state in the center rather than God, because we don't recognize that economic growth is based on productivity rather than consumption, and we don't recognize that you have to defer gratification. There is no growth if you consume everything now. All knowledge is done with capital. 
Let's mm-hmm. kind of get back to that. Uh, George Gilder has a new book out on this uh, about how all wealth building is really knowledge building. So unless there's a period of time when you're doing something and learning how to do something, it's not valuable yet. No one will buy it yet because you're learning. Well, that's done with investment capital. Somebody's paying you or you're not paying yourself. You're deferring your gratification. And what happens in the fallen world is we want it all now because we want to comfort ourselves in this, in this veil of tears, in this world where there's you know, labor by the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles. We just want to eat it all now and we don't defer. So the government comes along and says, well, we'll fix that. You're not savers, but we're going to create money out of nothing. And that will make you feel like you're rich and you will, def- and you, you don't have to defer gratification, but you can still build businesses. You can build houses. You don't know for sure that anyone's going to buy those houses. No one's stopping and saying, wait, did we build too many houses? Kind of like we did. Or wait a minute, did we build too many dot-coms? Or wait a minute, did we build too many college campuses? You don't ask that question because governments attempt to fix the problem by creating an abundance of money when there isn't an abundance of savings creates a distortion and that makes things worse. Mm, Yeah. And obviously, as this alienation between God and man works its way through the the system, it leads to a shrinkage in production and in the amount of wealth created. And that virtuous cycle that you told us about in part one is disrupted. Well, why don't we see it and do something about it? We'll talk about that and much more with Jerry Boyer today. We're talking about God's design for economics and why it goes wrong when we remove him from the equation. Jerry Boyer with us today. Much more to come just around the corner. I'm Rob West, plus your calls ahead as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We are grateful for support from LightPoint Portfolios, which seeks out family and faith-friendly investments for 401k and 403b plans, integrating faith values and fiduciary duty. LightPoint Portfolios offers retirement plans for a variety of organizations such as businesses, nonprofits, and churches. And we're grateful for their sponsorship of the Faith and Finance Program. More information is available at lightpointportfolios.com. Absolutely free. We know you've learned to be suspicious of those words, but really, you can get biblical financial wisdom delivered to your inbox each week absolutely free. Articles, videos, podcasts, and special offers on biblical resources. Nearly 60,000 people receive our free weekly wisdom email, and you can too. Create your free FaithFi account by going to faithfi.com and click sign up to begin receiving weekly wisdom in your inbox. Great to have you with us today on Faith and Finance. I'm Rob West. Joining me today, our resident economist, Jerry Boyer. We're talking about a Christian economic worldview. We're in part three of a six-part series talking about God's design for economics and wealth creation. In part one, we uh, described the ideal economy. In part two, Jerry described what goes wrong. And today, we're looking at why it goes wrong. And uh, Jerry, you were unpacking that before the break. I guess my question is, why don't the people in charge of things see this problem, this breakdown, and then do something about it? Well, in order for them to see it and do something about it, a couple of things need to be the case. Um, Not just one of them, but you have to have a few of them. One is somebody needs to tell them. (laughs) If, If no one's taught them, then how will they know? 
If no one's taught them about God and the design of the economy, the design of the universe, if no one's walked them through the creation account, um, and but you don't just stop because that kind of ends on the curse, but there's a promise of redemption, then we get redemption later in the Gospels, and we see the whole arc of history, you know, from garden to city in the Bible. If no one taught them that, then they won't know it. Uh, if the church doesn't teach biblical economics, what do we think? The, you know, the masters of the universe, you know, the people at the, at the Davos meetings, that they're going to teach themselves biblical economics? No. no. Well, they, so they have to be taught, but they also have to be willing to overcome the natural bias of people who are part of ruling classes, which is to be God. <laughs> you know, normally, you know, I've, most of my life I've lived in neighborhoods that are, you know, let's say, you know, lower middle class, middle class, etc. So my friends, fellow church members have not been members of elites for the most part. They not, they're not tempted to think that they're like the gods of the world. That, you know, poor people, middle-class people, you know, we have our own temptations, but there's a particular temptation of people who are at the top of the state or at the top of giant corporations or at the top of giant foundations, which is to, you know, they don't trust that God exists, so they're going to play the role that the Bible gives to God and control everything and save the world from whatever they think is threatening the world, global warming or overpopulation or whatever. So they have to overcome the natural pride of being a member of the ruling class to say, as much as I feel like I'm powerful, I have to acknowledge that I'm really weak. James says, let the brother of high, of, uh, of high uh, status exalt in his lowliness. Well, that sounds weird, but they were in fact lowly. You know, the people at the top in Jerusalem, we, we read about this in my book, The Maker versus the Takers, they felt like they were in control, but they were about to lose everything. They can't control the world. They're not big and strong enough. So first of all, the church, it doesn't have to be necessarily the ministers. It can, the church is all the people of God, although I think ministers should do it too, should teach biblical economics. They should not just teach it to members, but they should proclaim it to the nations. And then the rulers of the nations can either disobey, crash, and then we can explain, this is why it happened, or they yes. can repent and obey. So why don't they, you know, why don't they change? Because we didn't teach them. And because it's hard for somebody who's wealthy and powerful to put themselves in a humble role and submit. Mm, yeah, interesting. Well, Jerry, obviously one of the fundamental breakdowns that occurs in this is understanding the relationship, God's design for the relationship between man and his creation and that human beings are a blessing, not a curse, and that we're to be productive. But this uh, humanistic worldview of economics undermines that, doesn't it? It does. It sees mankind as some random thing that happened. Um, and, you know, the world kind of came up with us randomly through Darwinian evolution. Uh, and for some people, it's like, well, that's okay. And for other people, no, humanity is a cancer on the earth. And Gaia, the goddess, is angry at us for our, you know, modern economy. Uh, and there's a constant sense that, well, there's too many people. You know, the earth can't handle all these people. Well, the Bible said to fill the earth with people. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I mean, the, the zero population growth people are directly at odds with Moses, who's speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit in the Torah. Fill the earth and subdue it. So the revolt against the biblical view, and by the way, the people who are doing it know it. Um, you know, the, some of these articles in the 60s and 70s, they go back to the book of Genesis, and they say, this is where Western civilization went wrong. The idea that we're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. By embracing that idea, we came up with modern technology, and modern technology is all the bad things in the world. And you know how I know modern technology is so bad? Because people tell me that on Twitter. 
<laughs> they tell me that, uh, you know, electricity is bad and the technology is bad. They tell me on Facebook. They tell me on cable news. So they're in kind of a parasitic relationship with modern technology. So the Bible tells us to fill the earth and subdue it. The inverse um, is we are not to fill the earth. We're to leave as small a footprint as possible. We're to change as little as possible. We're to leave things untouched, unsullied, pristine. Well, that's the opposite of the biblical worldview. Um, and to the degree that we've turned from a biblical worldview, our economic growth has largely slowed down. And our economic growth over the past couple of decades has largely been sort of things that we're addicted to, like streaming services and online gambling and social media, not the actual filling and subduing the earth. Stuff. You know, like energy and transportation and agriculture, you know, the actual physical world. So we're really, as my friend Peter Thiel says, we're really not growing much anymore. We're growing or we're growing in ways that aren't very healthy. Well, I think that goes back to rejecting a biblical view that we're supposed to shape this creation to go. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. And that's where we ought to be going. Mm. And this obviously has been accelerating in the 20th century, largely because of the foundation under this, rejecting God at the center of economic design and replacing that with modern economics, which comes from John Maynard Keynes, I guess, right? It does. And for John Maynard Keynes, uh, growth causes inflation, so we don't want too much of it. And for John Maynard Keynes, um, the economy is basically a matter of what he calls animal spirits, because he thought we were just animals. Um, and, you know, for John Maynard Keynes, you know, he saw essentially the thrift, he saw monogamy, heterosexuality, and thrift. These are the Victorian virtues. Well, he's the Edwardian era, so he's after that. So he was rebelling against the Victorian virtues. Well, the problem is, you know, that the United Kingdom became incredibly powerful and important. Some of it was bad, like imperialism, but a lot of it was really great. Technological progress, economic growth, rising standards of living. People were living longer. We were getting rid of, of infant mortality. We were getting rid of all these contagions and diseases. Humanity was, we were progressing so much that we were tempted to worship progress rather than the God who gave that blessing. The 20th century revolts against that. There's a Keynesian revolt, there's a Marxist revolt, and there's a fascist, fascist revolt. And so the 20th century could have been the great century of growth in human history, but instead it was the great century of warfare and genocide, because at the beginning we left the biblical moorings. Mm. Jerry, unfortunately, we've got just a minute left. So sum this up for us. What happens ultimately when we remove the one true God from our economic endeavors? Things get bad. And then if we react to the bad things with bad behavior, they get worse. And if we react, you know, even more badly to them getting worse, they get worse. Jordan Peterson, who's not a God on all spiritual, but he says, yes, he's, in, as he's interpreting, you know, the idea of hell. You know, what he takes, he interprets it just psychologically, but he says what it means is things can always get worse. And they can. Go back and read the history of the 20th century. And in some places, things got incredibly bad. But you can always repent. Now, there is a time, happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, where you repent and the nation isn't saved. Or the same thing with Jeremiah and Israel. It's too late. And you repent, but, but there's a, a remnant. I don't think we're there but we, the nation can't turn back to God unless Christians tell it how to. And that, to me, starts with biblical economics and the biblical view of politics. Well, this is an important topic, Jerry, and we're going to talk next time about the way out, because there is a way out of this if we return to a biblical worldview. Thanks for stopping by, my friend. Always a pleasure. God bless you. 
That's Jerry Boyer, our resident economist. Much more ahead on Faith and Finance. Stay with us. We're grateful for support from Eventide Investments on the Faith and Finance program. Eventide's approach to values-based investing is grounded in the belief that humankind was created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Eventide calls this investing that makes the world rejoice. More information is available at eventideinvestments.com. That's eventideinvestments.com. As the leading advocate for the Christian financial industry, Kingdom Advisors serves the public by promoting the integration of a biblical worldview across every aspect of the financial services industry. And we serve a growing network of thousands of Christian financial professionals, equipping and empowering them to carry biblical financial wisdom to their clients, peers, and community. For more information, visit KingdomAdvisors.com. That's KingdomAdvisors.com. Welcome back to Faith and Finance. I'm your host, Rob West. The number to call is 800-525-7000. I'm looking forward to hearing from you as we take your calls and questions from across the country. In fact, uh, let's head to Cleveland. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for being on the program, sir. Go ahead. Hi, thanks, Rob. Uh, uh, 60 plus years old, recently single, uh, need to purchase a home. I'll have about 100K to put down on it. I also own a rental property which probably brings in after it's all said and done 10 to 12,000 per year. Um, so I'm not sure if I could sell that and put that, uh, to the purchase of that house. I could probably afford about a $200,000, 200 to 225. Um, not sure if I should hang on to that rental property and collect the rent or sell it and use it for the proceeds of the house. Yeah, let me just ask a few questions, and I'm happy to weigh in. You said you have a hundred to put down, correct? Correct. Okay, and um, so that would leave you a mortgage of somewhere around a hundred and twenty-five thousand. And you say, do you think that will work in your budget at current rates? Uh, yeah. Or I mean, I guess the big question is, do I ditch the rental property? Could probably get about a, uh, about probably one twenty-ish for it. Yeah. It is, it's free. It's free and clear at this point, obviously. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like if it's if it's a wash and you're getting ten to twelve thousand a year out of that house, and you could basically take that income and cover your mortgage. Now all of a sudden, you've got two pieces of property that are appreciating. And I love the idea that you're diversified, you know, in asset classes. Do you have some retirement assets in the stock market? Uh, I, I do. Uh, I got a pension coming at sixty five, so it's about another year and a month. Okay. So I love the fact that you'd be heading into retirement. Uh, you, you know, you'd have a relatively small mortgage at 125,000. I realize rates aren't great right now, but given the cash flow you've got on this other property, I think keeping both of these properties, one you're living in, one that's a rental, uh, especially if the rental's covering the mortgage, the debt service on your new primary residence, that just feels really good to me, especially given the guaranteed income you'll have when you hit uh, retirement. Yeah, it won't. I mean, their income from the rental will not quite cover a mortgage because I've looked into it. I'm probably still up, uh, you know, thirteen hundred a month. So it'll come yeah. close, but it won't. Okay. It, you know, won't quite yeah. cover it. 
But if it's not too much work on you, it's not been a real big hassle to keep it rented. It's in a desirable area. And, you know, you've got some good renters that have been coming through there. I mean, I, I like the idea of hanging on to it. It feels like you're still living fairly modestly. And the fact that you've got 100000 to put down on this next house tells me you're doing some things right. So unless you just have a real conviction to be debt-free, uh, and if you did, I'd just sell this property and buy it with cash. But if you're comfortable hanging on to that mortgage, I think having both, both of these properties heading into retirement uh, would be a good thing. Yeah, I do kind of like the debt-free thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, pay attention to that because if if that's the case and you're really feeling the sense that, hey, I just want to know that I own everything and I owe no one anything um, and, you know, that's okay, then I would say this is a ripe opportunity. I think this would be an opportunity for you to go ahead and liquidate that for top dollar and then just buy that new property with cash and, you know, you've got your income lined up for retirement. You're debt free at that point. If that feels good to you, then I certainly wouldn't argue with that. Yeah, that that sounds like a prettier picture, but I'm uh, okay. not sure if it's theological. So, okay, thanks so much. Appreciate your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm I'm a little uh, wishy-washy on this one. I mean, I, I think you could make a case either way, but the part that I heard right there at the end, Jeff, that you would really feel better uh, being debt-free, that tells me everything I need to know. I would say don't look back, sell that property, buy it with cash, and, and honor that desire that you have to be debt-free. So I'm, I'm on board with that here at the end of uh, our conversation. Thanks for being on the program today. Uh, Takresha in Miami, go right ahead. You're on the program. My question is, I need to purchase a new vehicle, but I'm debating if I should purchase a 2019, which is within my budget, or wait a couple of months and get a 2020 and hope that that vehicle would drop down and now be in my budget. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm a little confused though, in terms of, have you already identified the cards or are you just talking kind of generally here? No, I've, I've identified the cards. All right. And you believe you're, you're hoping that if you wait a little bit longer, the 2020 model, the person who's selling it as a used vehicle, that they're going to lower the price uh, because the new model years are out? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I probably wouldn't take that approach because if it's priced right, it's going to be sold out from under you while you're waiting. Um, so I would probably prefer that you just determine how much you can afford in your budget and then just buy, you know, the best car you can based on the reliability, the safety ratings, uh, but also, you know, of course the price point, and then you're going to want to get it checked out by a third party. I would also, once you kind of narrow it down to what you want to spend and what make and model you're looking for, just really scour the country. I mean, the last car I bought, I bought it three states away. I, you know, I saved thousands of dollars by buying a plane ticket, flying in, spending the night, picking up the car the next morning and driving it home. Um, so just be willing to travel. But um, I wouldn't necessarily just kind of sit on the sideline waiting for the new model years to come out. Because again, if this car is priced appropriately, it's going to get sold. And if it's not, I wouldn't count on necessarily this used car owner to drop the price just because the new model years are out. So I would go ahead and proceed with your purchase. I would just look for, you know, as new a car with as low a mileage as you can get that fits your budget once you've decided on the make and model. I guess because when I went on the website, it's the pre-owned certified. They had a lot of choices, a lot of cars. So it wasn't like it was just one car 
by one person that's being sold. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I guess the, the way I would approach it though, is, I mean, do you feel like you've, you've narrowed it down to the make and model you, you truly want? Yes. Okay. And if that's the case, I would just scour the internet. I mean, I'd, if you only want to work with dealerships, I would understand that. But if you could include, you know, private party sales, you'll have, have a lot more. But even if you just look at dealerships, I would just look at the year, the make, the model, the price range you're looking for, set up an alert on autotrader.com and, you know, cars.com and a few others. And just, you know, every day you're scouring the internet for the new cars that have come online, uh, you know, in that make, model, and year with as low a mileage as possible, you know exactly what they're going for. So you can immediately spot one that's really priced well, and you're ready to jump on it. Um, but if you feel like this one is not priced right, um, you know, I, I would pass on it and I would just keep looking until you find one that fits your budget. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. You're welcome. We appreciate it. Thank you for stopping by today. Thank you for listening and being a part of the program. I want to say thank you to my team, Amy, Dan, and Jim Henry. Uh, thank you for being here. Come back and join us tomorrow, will you? I'll be here. We'll look for you then. God bless you. Bye-bye. Faith and Finance is provided by FaithFi and listeners like you. 